All right, good afternoon, Redemption Bible Church. Glad you're here today. Looking forward to our time together in the Word. If you have a Bible with you, we are in Zechariah chapter 5 today. Zechariah chapter 5. This is a beautiful Lord's Day. And we're excited to be part of the fellowship. Uh, My family and I are thankful for all of you. We've had many uh, opportunities to have chats uh, before and after the services. And we thank you for your uh, many kind words and hospitality to us. Uh, It's been a blessing, and so we're thankful for that. We're continuing this afternoon with the sixth and seventh of the eight night visions that Zechariah uh, was given by the Lord, and we're going to learn, I think, some important truths from Scripture this afternoon, so I'm looking forward to it. So let me uh, read the passage for us, lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at it together. So we are in Zechariah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity, or some translations, eye or appearance in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll consider it together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, and we ask uh, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would use this scripture to challenge and encourage us, to help us to see wonderful truths about your goodness and beauty, uh, about uh, our need for holiness and righteousness as we serve you. I pray that you would bring us both conviction and hope and encouragement as we think about your future work to bring righteousness and justice to the world, to remove evil and iniquity, and to establish a kingdom for your son to reign so that we might glorify you and enjoy Uh, the wonderful blessing and prosperity that you will bring. Lord, we thank you now for this passage, and I thank you for this congregation. I pray that you'd be at work in our midst today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We put a lot of stock, as you might imagine, in someone's reputation. My mother used to say to me when I was a young man, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and only a moment to lose it. And we know that that's the case. In fact, we've entered, I would say, an era in our history in which it's become, unfortunately, somewhat commonplace for people to 
try to destroy someone's reputation online if a person commits a perceived social misstep or uh, does something that the uh, ideology of the age doesn't find attractive, often people will group up online, begin to shame a person, and often even destroy a person's reputation, career, family. I'm sure that we've heard stories about things like this. There's one kind of infamous incident that took place along these lines, and it happened about 10 years ago for a woman named Justine Sacco, and I kind of want to just tell her story to get a, a sense for this. Sacco was a PR executive for a company based in New York City called IAC, and she was traveling overseas, going from New York to South Africa for a conference, and she had a layover at Heathrow Airport in London. At the time, she was kind of posting things on Twitter as she went, and she had only about 170 followers at the time, so she really didn't think uh, much of what she said would make much of an impact. She began to kind of make offhanded jokes about the indignities of travel and about some of her fellow passengers. Uh, she tweeted, weird Ger German dude, you're in first class, get some deodorant, things like that. But as she went on, uh, some of the jokes became, shall we say, less savory, what some might consider stereotyping. And she finally sent her last joke at the Heathrow Airport press send walked around the airport, checked her phone a few times. There was really no one responding, which she wasn't surprised about, and she got on the airplane. It was an 11-hour flight down to Johannesburg, and while she was in the air, she slept. When the plane finally landed and was taxiing on the runway, she turned on her phone. And right away, she got a text from someone she hadn't talked to since high school. They had texted her, I'm sorry, so sorry to see what's happening. She looked at it, somewhat baffled. Then another text came through, you need to call me immediately. It was from her best friend, Hannah. Then her phone exploded with more texts and alerts, and finally it rang. It was Hannah. She said, you're the number one worldwide trend on Twitter right now. Sacco's Twitter feed had become something of a nightmare. People tweeting in response to the jokes that she had posted. Someone posted, how did Justine Sacco get a PR job? Her level of racist ignorance belongs on Fox News and things like that. People from her company began tweeting and finally one from her employer. Uh, they tweeted, this is an outrageous, offensive comment. The employee in question is currently unreachable on an international flight. Uh, you can imagine her, her feeling when she turned on her phone and a lot of people were tweeting things like, all I want for Christmas is to see Justine Sacco's face when her plane lands and she checks her inbox. One Twitter user even went to the airport there and snapped a photo of her and tweeted, yep, Justine Sacco has in fact landed at Cape Town or Johannesburg International Airport. As a result of this, Justine would lose her job and her reputation would be destroyed all in the course of one plane ride from London to South Africa. Now I did, just to put a cap on this story, I did check online and she's since found another job and is still an executive, so she seems to be doing okay. Having said that though, we probably shudder a little bit when we think of things like that happening. Imagine if that happened to you or to me, that something that we said inadvertently, a seemingly innocuous statement became the source of a, an angry mob on Twitter that wanted to publicly shame and disgrace us. But even beyond that, imagine for a moment that it wasn't an angry Twitter mob, but it was the all-knowing, all-seeing God who exposed to the world 
what kind of person we really are. Not just maybe our public action, but even our private sins, our inner thoughts. Imagine if those were revealed to the world. What would we think about that? What kind of person are we truly? I can imagine that would be an unnerving, somewhat mortifying experience. And yet the scriptures tell us that for sin to be rooted out of our hearts, it needs to be acknowledged, identified, and confessed. God knows everything about us, even our inner thoughts and our private sins. The book of Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. And in the passage before us, we see that for God to dwell among his people, the first thing that must happen is for evil, and particularly evildoers, to be removed from the land. Now this might seem like an egregious step or uh, something that is perhaps frightening, but the reality is for there to be true justice, there must first be righteousness. People talk a lot today about wanting to see justice, but unless there are actually standards of what constitutes right and wrong, justice can really never be enacted. In this passage, we learn that God, intending to dwell with his people in the coming kingdom, must first purge the sins from the land, sin must be dealt with, and evildoers removed. And so we're going to see in this passage that only God can finally remove evil and bring justice. Here in chapter 5, we are in what uh, would be identified as the sixth night vision. So if you look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, this is the sixth night vision. And the sixth night vision, a few things about this, has a lot of corollaries to the third vision. Now, I don't know if you've uh, necessarily been able to keep track on all the visions we've looked at so far, but if you remember the third one, it happens in chapter 2, and it's a vision of a man with a measuring line. And I argued, I, I suggested there that that man with a measuring line is actually the pre-incarnate Christ who comes and takes measurements of Jerusalem as he prepares to renovate the city, remembering that when the kingdom takes place and Jesus returns, the city of Jerusalem will be expanded and built out, and so uh, they'll sort of spill out into the countryside, and so the man comes, he sort of hovers and flies in and takes measurements of the city to prepare for that. And this sixth vision has corollaries to that third vision. Both are dealing with the nation and its preparation for the kingdom. Both have to do with uh, the measurement. We'll find here a measurement of a scroll that's flying across the land, and both have to do with a supernatural flying or hovering that takes place over the city. Uh, and so there is a correlation between those. But not only that, there's also a correlation with the seventh vision. Went one too far. All right. All right, there we go. All right, sixth and seventh vision. The sixth and seventh visions are the two visions that we're going to look at today one with the flying scroll and one with a woman in the basket. Now, I would say that uh, as we've looked at these visions, we might think that sometimes the symbols are fairly easy to interpret in the sense that if we kind of understand New Testament prophecy or Old Testament prophecy, we might be able to 
grasp what some of the symbolism means, but I would say the symbolism here is a bit more difficult, a bit more challenging. So what really is happening here? Well, in both visions, it seems there's a focus here on judgment primarily rather than blessing, which has been the case in the other visions. The other visions have talked about how God's going to come with his presence. He's going to bless the people uh, and he will live and dwell in their midst. But here, the tone is more sober. This is about judgment of sin and how God is planning to remove sin from the land. In both visions, though, there's uh, repeated words like going forth. There's a dynamic movement in these visions. The, the phrase or word going forth appears six times. Uh, so we see that throughout these visions. Uh, and also there's uh, an emphasis on a house. And this may not have been picked up depending on your translation, but at the end of both visions, there's a mention of a house. In the case of the flying scroll, the house of the evildoer is consumed or destroyed down to its timber and stones. And in the case of the flying basket, uh, they're going to prepare a house or build a house or temple for her and set her there on the pedestal. And so what this seems to suggest is God's intention to destroy the households of those who rebel against him on the one hand, as well as to confine and contain evil in its house in the case of the other. And so I'll try to explain those as we go along uh, so we can understand better what's happening. So first we want to look at uh, the first the first vision of the two, which is the sixth vision. And the point here is this, God removes evildoers so that justice can flourish. God removes evildoers so that justice can flourish. In order for God to dwell in the midst of his people, evil must be taken care of and dealt with for justice to happen. There has to be a removal of evildoers who are committing sins and crimes against the Lord. And so the visions here take a sharply, we might say, stern turn as they deal with sin. God allows no sin in his midst. You remember earlier in the Old Testament, this was a, a big question in the Mosaic Law. If you've ever read through the end of Exodus into Leviticus, there's an interesting little episode there where Moses has had the tabernacle built he blesses it, and then Exodus ends with this kind of ominous note that Moses can't go into the tabernacle because God's presence has filled it. And so as you end Exodus, you wonder, how are the people going to meet with God if he can't enter in because of God's presence? And then immediately Leviticus uh, begins with atonement. And the purpose there is this is how a holy God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people through the process and protocol that he enacts, which is to have sin atoned for. And in that book of Leviticus, we find the most frequent use of the word holy in all the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 says, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And I would just say as an aside, I think that as our culture gets progressively worse, it would be easy for Christians to be desensitized to the evil in our midst. But never forget that God is a holy God. God is separate from sin. God must judge sin and cannot tolerate sin in His presence. 
And so this vision has to do with his future judgment when sin is finally dealt with. I think sometimes we, we value and prize kindness above all things in our culture, but we must also remember that uh, the chief attribute of God is holiness, which means there also must be judgment of sin. It's not that it's an unkind, unloving thing. It's so that righteousness and justice can prevail so that good, the good of God can be present in our lives. Now, this kind of judgment is a little obscure with this flying scroll, but there are two passages in the Old Testament that expand a little bit on what's going on and in, in, in teaching uh, about this judgment. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to a couple passages with me th this afternoon, I think this would help us. One is in Ezekiel 20. Turning back to Ezekiel 20. And there's a mention here of this future judgment in Ezekiel 20, 34 to 38. Ezekiel 20, 34 to 38. It says, I will bring you out from all the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you out into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I think in both cases, we see here a judgment of Israel that's going to take place in the future where God removes evildoers from the nation as the Messiah takes his throne, the throne of David, to reign. Going back to Zechariah, we see a, another passage. I'll just read it for you, but it's in Malachi 3.5. In Malachi 3.5, where the Lord says in the final Old Testament prophet, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear the Lord. As a result of God's judgment, evildoers will be removed from the land and those who follow the Lord, those who have trusted in the Lord, will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. Paul talks about this in Romans 11. He says, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah. He says, in this way, Israel, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness, godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And I, I think it's prudent just to pause for a moment and ask all of us, do we truly know the Lord? When we read a text like this that has to do with God's future judgment, it's not intended just to scare us or to terrify us, but it's intended to sober us to the reality that one day all of us will stand before the Lord. And in that day, when you are face to face with the Lord, will you be standing in the righteousness of Christ? Will you be able to say, I'm trusting in the Lamb of God who imputed his righteousness to my account. Will you be able to say, I've trusted in Christ for salvation? Or will you have nothing to say simply to face God's terrifying judgment? I would encourage you today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, and we will be saved. 
when we believe in Christ, there is forgiveness and there is cleansing of sin. So then looking in more detail, let's look together at the passage. Notice he starts and he says, I lifted up my eyes, I looked, and behold, a flying scroll. Flying scroll. What is this scroll? It's an interesting image. It's about the size of a billboard. If you can imagine as you're driving down the highway, the billboards that we see on the side of the road would be about the same dimensions as this flying scroll. No human is behind it. It seems to just be flying on its own and to be sort of hovering or flying over the land. And it encompasses all the land. It passes through all the land. What's interesting is uh, in earlier passages of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is pictured in a similar way as hovering or flying. All the way back in creation, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering or flying over the surface of the waters. And in Exodus 19.4, as the people are led out of Egypt, they have a pillar of cloud and fire that hovers over them and leads them in the way that they should go. And God uses the imagery of flying them, uh, as it were, on eagle's wings out of the land. But the fact that it's flying, I think, also symbolizes the swiftness of the judgment. We take for granted flying today. We can go down to Detroit Metro Airport, get on a plane, and fly almost anywhere in the world. But to the ancient people, flying was something that you only saw birds do, or it, it often symbolized something that was fast, speedy, and swift. And so what this seems to suggest is that when the time of judgment comes, it will be swift and it will be complete. One other thing, though, that's interesting about this is the dimensions of this billboard. Uh, if you note it, it says it's 20 cubits and 10 cubits. Now, we don't use cubits, so what is a cubit? Uh, there are different measurements of cubits, but it's usually taken to be a, around 18 inches or so. And the dimensions of this cubit match exactly, uh, of this flying scroll, match the holy place within the tabernacle. Now, the holy place, if you recall, there are three parts of the tabernacle. There's the holy of holies where God dwells. There's the holy place where the bread of the presence and the lampstand are. That's where the priest would go in to minister. And then there's the outside area where the worshipers would come. And so what I think this is symbolizing is that the scroll is the same dimensions as the place where humans meet with God. And what this suggests is that God's presence uh, has a necessary corollary, which is to remove sin from the people. 1 Peter 4.17 says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And so the scroll flies, and it has, it has a message on it. It says that there's a curse. There's a curse on it. Notice verse 3. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. And then it mentions in particular two sins, the one who steals and the one who swears falsely. Now, what is this talking about? This word translated curse is the same word that signifies an oath in the Old Testament. When two parties would make a covenant, they would swear an oath saying, I will abide by the stipulations of this covenant. And that word oath came to also signify if somebody violated the covenant, then all the, the stipulations, all the punishments and penalties of that covenant would come upon them. And this was taken very seriously in the ancient world. If you 
pledged yourself to a covenant and you willingly violated it, that was seen as a very serious infraction. So the curse here relates to this covenant, and I think this is why we see it as pertaining particularly to the nation of Israel that has covenanted with God. In the future, God will come to the nation that he had made a covenant with, and he's going to renew a new covenant with them. But here this is related to the law, the Mosaic law. Now, why stealing and why perjury? It seems that the best uh, way I think of interpreting this is it's related to the two tables of the Ten Commandments. You think of the Ten Commandments, also called the Decalogue. These are the commands that God gave to Moses. And as I try to explain it in my classes and other places, there's really two dimensions to the Ten Commandments. There's the vertical dimension, our relationship with God, and that pertains to the first part of the Ten Commandments. And then it's the horizontal dimension, that is our relationship to fellow humans, to the community. And what I think this is meaning when it says on one side and on the other side that this is the two tables of the law and it's related specifically to those who have violated a proper relationship with God, that would be perjury, and those who have violated a proper relationship with fellow humans, that would be stealing. And so God is enacting the curses of the covenant upon those who have sinned in this way. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, particularly the Mosaic Law, we would see this is the case as the law is enacted, particularly in Leviticus 26 and 27 and in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, blessings and curses are pronounced. If you obey God as the nation of Israel, God will bless you in this way. If you fail to obey, these curses will come upon you. And what's interesting as you read that is the, the list of curses is much, much longer than the list of blessings. In other words, it's a very serious thing to violate the covenant. This is what Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And in Deuteronomy 28:45, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes. And so what this says is that the evildoers will be eliminated. They'll be cleared out or cleaned out. And they will be uh, accordingly judged by the Lord. And so this curse goes throughout the land. And one other passage that I think is important about this is, I think this corresponds actually to what Jesus prophesied. A lot of commentators, when they're trying to explain this passage, will look at it and say, when did this happen in Zechariah's day? Was there a moment in which they got rid of all the evildoers of the land? And we would have to say, no, it never happened in Zechariah's day. It didn't happen after him. It still hadn't happened by the time Christ uh, was born and came. And so I think Zechariah here is looking forward to a future day that even Jesus himself prophesied about in the Olivet Discourse. And you'd like to turn there, a, a passage that's important along these lines is in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus prophesies about this very event taking place. Matthew 24, 37 to 44. He says this, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known at which part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So coming back to Zechariah, I think what we see here is the Lord will come in judgment. And the way that I read this Matthew 24 passage is he's not taking uh, people in a sense of what we might call the rapture. He's taking them in judgment. And what this means is the evildoers will be removed from the land when Christ returns because he will judge sin and he will prepare Israel for the coming of the kingdom. And then the final thing that it says here is it's going to lodge in the house of the thief, verse 4, and it will destroy it down to its timber and stones. What does this mean? The very house of the evildoer will be destroyed. In the Mosaic law, if a house had uh, some kind of a mold growing in it, they would often have to condemn the house and tear it down, raise it to the ground, uh, and demolish it. And this kind of imagery might be in view here, but I think it's more than just physical structures. I think what this is saying is, the Lord will find out the sin of the evildoer and will destroy it down to the very house. What this means, I think, is that God's judgment is personal, thorough, and inescapable. There's no hiding from the Lord. Uh, other prophets like uh, Amos talk about this. There's nowhere you can go to escape the presence of the Lord. He knows all and sees all, even the very house of the evildoer. So I would just encourage us as we think about this, uh, are we trying to hide things from the Lord? He knows down to the timber and stone. Uh, I would encourage us to confess and forsake our sin that we may have mercy. This brings us then to the seventh vision. And here we see that God removes evil spiritual influences so that righteousness can flourish. God is going to remove evil spiritual influences so that righteousness can flourish. There's not only the presence of evildoers, but there's a spiritual presence of evil that also needs to be removed. It's easy because uh, the people who commit crimes are visible to us to easily recognize that there are bad people in the world, but what sometimes we in our scientific 21st century mindset forget to realize is that there's also spiritual wickedness at work. Spiritual influences which are evil and which draw people toward doing evil. This seventh vision is connected to the second vision. If you remember way back then, I don't remember if it was July, I think when uh, we looked at that, the vision of the four horns and how God dealt with those enemies of Israel that were troubling them. And one of those horns I suggested from the book of Daniel chapter 8 is Babylon. And Babylon here is going to be front and center through uh, its other alternative name, which is Shinar. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But the idea here is that in the second vision, the threatening, menacing of Babylon is dealt with, but here evil is taken to Babylon, and there it's contained and it's relegated. There's a woman here in the basket. She's personified, and she's connected ultimately to Babylon. And so uh, we'll try to understand exactly what this entails. God has to deal with the wicked spiritual influences, uh, and in doing so, he's going to 
uh, bring righteousness through the coming of Christ. All right, can we advance the slide? I'm not able to. All right, thank you. All right, so when we come to this, let's look at verse 5. It says, The angel who talked with me came forward and said, Lift up your eyes and see what is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the literally ephah or basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity or I in all the land. Now, there are several tricky things here to understand, so let me try to explain what's going on. So, this is the next vision. We know that because an angel comes forward and he begins another conversation. This suggests that we're now looking at another vision. And this movement that he does of going forward is a key term in this passage, and I think that's also significant because it's the word used in the Exodus. When God leads the nation out of Egypt, it says he brings them out or uh, leads them out, and this same word to go forward suggests there's an exodus here in reverse. They've had a second exodus from Babylon, and now God is reversing the exodus by taking evil back to Babylon and containing it there. The angel says, lift up your eyes, and he uses an imperative, see what is happening. This is a very strong statement because it's the first time an imperative is used for Zechariah to look at something, to see what he is supposed to see. And what he sees here is a basket, and I've said this earlier, but usually the first thing mentioned, the first image is is the significant one, the important one, and here it's a basket or literally an ephah. And what this suggests is uh, a measurement, a measurement in which uh, goods and produce were often placed. We don't really have an analogous English word other than maybe bushel, which can signify both the basket and the measurement. In ancient Israel, their largest dry measurement was the ephah, the, the largest liquid measurement was the hen, and here this is the ephah. And it probably had about five to eight gallons or so that it would contain. So it was a basket where produce was often placed. Now the question is, what does this intend to signify? What's the significance here of seeing an ephah or a basket? I think what this is tied to, again, is the Mosaic law. And particularly, I would note a passage like Leviticus 19.36. It says this, you shall have just balances, just weights, and a just ephah, and a just hen, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, in the law, the people of Israel were to have ethical standards of right and wrong. We might call this honest business practices, righteous and fair business practices, not the proverbial butcher who places his thumb on the scales as he's weighing your meat. They were to be fair and just and honest. And the reason that I say this is not only do we have the ephah, but there are several other words used here that all pertain to the context of business or commerce. Things like uh, the leaden cover on the basket is actually the word for talent. And you may recognize that word as being a, a word for money or currency in the Bible. And then the word stone is also used, and stone was used in measuring scales, uh, and so they were to have proper business dealings. Amos 8.5 talks about a time when the ephah is small and the shekel is great. In other words, there were times in which their priorities were inverted and they became dishonest. They took advantage and exploited people 
they did things to try to gain an upper hand, and in doing that, they were often dishonest and abusive toward others or exploiting them for their own gain. All right, and this takes us then to what is probably the most, perhaps the most difficult uh, interpretive part of the book, one of them. Uh, there's another one in a later chapter, but here in verse 6, it says, this is their iniquity in all the land. Now, if you can just imagine for a moment that you're coming into my seminary classroom, I'm going to take just a moment to explain why I prefer a few other versions to the ESV here. I have the ESV, and may, many of you probably do. The ESV, along with the NIV and Christian Standard Bible, they all translate this as iniquity. The reason they do that is they're following the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which had a word for sin here. But the Hebrew Bible that we use, which is the basis for the New King James, the King James, the NASB, New American Standard, and the Net Bible, say I or appearance or resemblance. If you have the Old King James, I think it has something like resemblance as the translation. So which is it and how do we know? These two words, iniquity and I, are very alike in Hebrew. In fact, there's only one letter difference. It's, if I could use an analogy, it's almost like the difference between an M and an N. It's a very small difference or between a V and a W. Remember that all these manuscripts were copied a thousand years and more before the printing press, and so it was easy sometimes for a scribe to not extend the letter as long as he should have, and that's really what the difference is. One letter goes halfway down, the other letter goes three-quarters of the way down, so it was easy to mistake these two letters. So how do we know which one is right? Is it iniquity or is it I? Well, as we look at this, one of the principles that we use, and this may seem counterintuitive, but one of the principles we use is the more difficult reading is preferred. Now, why do I say that? Because scribes often would make it easier to read, not more difficult to read, if that makes sense. In other words, if you're going along copying something, you're going to automatically change it to a common word. You're not as likely to change it to an uncommon word. Does that make sense? And so many would see this and say probably the more difficult uh, word would not be iniquity because that's in the context of sin. It would be the word I. And if it is the word I, what does that mean? Well, here I am to try to explain it. So I prefer to see this as I, which the Net Bible, New American Standard, take it as. And if that's the case, what exactly is it saying? Well, remember in the New Testament when Jesus said something on the lines of, if your eye is evil, your whole body is evil. In the ancient world, the eye was seen as sort of the vitality of a person, uh, his force as a person, his energy, his uh, vitality, even his uh, control and manner of living. What I think this is saying is this, that Business practices leading up into the time when Jesus returns will become so powerful, they will exert energy to control and dominate the landscape in order to control what's going on. Now, if I were to ask you today, does that seem like a plausible scenario? I'm sure many of us would realize that the companies in our world today, particularly here in the U.S., have become so powerful that often nations are toppled as a result of the interests of commerce. 
and business. One commentator who was writing over a hundred years ago already saw this happening. He said, it's a, strike word, it's a striking and noteworthy fact which no intelligent person can fail to observe that commerce is more and more bringing the nations under its sway. We know that's the case through companies like Google, Facebook, and others we can mention who have become so powerful they often dictate policy to those in charge. So what I think this is saying is in the end times, evil will become wrapped up in commercial business interests and they will use their power and resources and wealth to extend their control and authority. And what Zechariah sees as a message from the Lord here is that that is eventually contained and removed when Jesus returns. There's a lead cover here that is lifted and the woman seemingly tries to escape and he thrusts her back down. This leaden cover, uh, lead was an inferior metal. Remember when we saw last time the golden lampstand, God's presence demands gold, but here lead is what's used to control sin. And so this leaden cover is uh, put on top of the basket. Now this would weigh probably about 75 pounds, a little bit lighter than a manhole cover, but if you can imagine that, that's sort of the dimensions here, and it's put on the basket, and the woman is thrust back inside. Uh, and so wickedness here is contained. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians, that the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is taken away. The wickedness is put in the basket. It's removed away from the land. It's interesting, uh, in the last few years, I would say in our culture, I think we're beginning to see a removal of the restraint of sin. I've noticed this just in the past few years that things that I wouldn't have imagined or seen earlier in my life are now becoming, unfortunately, often commonplace. I had two separate conversations this week with missionaries who had just come to the U.S., uh, from a foreign nation where they were serving, one from South America and one from Africa. And it's interesting, they don't know each other, but both said to me, the United States has become such a wicked place. And I think sometimes we grow desensitized to it, like the proverbial frog boiling in the, in the pot, and perhaps we fail to see it, but the reality is, I think evil is, is creeping in and exerting an influence here. And so what this is talking about is God's going to remove that evil spiritual presence and take it away, and it's going to be taken, removed to the land of Shinar. Now, this is interesting in terms of the sweep of Scripture, so let me just take a moment to explain what's going on here. The word Shinar is an important one because we're first introduced to it all the way back in Genesis. If I had time to read these passages in Genesis 10, we're introduced to a character named Nimrod. And it says, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and he set up a kingdom, and its name was Babel in the land of Shinar. Shinar is connected from the very beginning with this Babel or Babylon. In the very next chapter in Genesis 11, we're introduced to a story where humanity comes together and they say, rather than being dispersed, let's build a tower up to heaven and make a name for ourselves so that we can centralize our control and power so that we're not dispersed and we'll build 
a temple like this ziggurat up into the heavens and make a name for ourselves, and that happens in the land of Shinar. What we see in this is that humanity is setting up a rival kingdom to God's kingdom. And uh, I talk about this in a lot of my classes, but it's really interesting because everything that the people at Babel want to do, they want to make a name for themselves, they want to congregate so they're not dispersed, uh, and they want to uh, reach up into heaven, God actually does with the patriarchs. He promises Abraham he'll make his name great, just like they were trying to be great. Jacob sees a staircase going up into heaven, much like they were trying to build a temple up into heaven. And then he blesses them so much that the people end up sending Isaac away because he's gotten too powerful. And so God, in his purposes, through the patriarchs, actually brings these things to pass. But here, humanity wants to do it in its own way. The word Babel uh, meant in the ancient languages the gate of God, and it became a wordplay with this idea of babbling or confusion of languages. This comes to a head finally in Revelation 17. And in Revelation 17, God promises that uh, the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, she's called Babylon, is finally destroyed, and uh, God removes her presence and her wickedness from the land, this imagery of evil. So what's happening here? I think what this suggests is that God's going to remove these wicked spiritual forces, contain them, and take them to Babylon where they can be housed in such a way that they'll no longer affect the world. They're going to be uh, shackled and encompassed in a way that their evil influences no longer can affect humanity during the reign of Christ. All right, so this is a lot of information and a lot of thoughts here. What do we do with this? Let me move us finally to some application principles as we try to put this together. I would say a couple things. Number one, God knows our hidden sins. I would encourage you to confess and forsake them today. 1 Samuel 2.3 says, The Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. Psalm 19 says, Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. A great Puritan theologian by the name of John Owen wrote a classic book called The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, he says, We must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. So we need to take every precaution and thought we can to root out sin from our lives. It's our duty as believers to do that. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to fight against sin, and we need to be constantly rooting out uh, those sins that would take root in our hearts. Number two, God desires a pure heart and a pure life in serving Him. I noted earlier, Leviticus 19 says, uh, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We need the perfect righteousness of Christ applied to our count. And if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, this is the offer that he makes, is that he will forgive our sins. The righteousness of Christ will be credited to us, and we will receive forgiveness and right standing before the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, 
and redemption. And then finally, spiritual forces hostile to God will continue to oppose God's people, but we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. There's a lot of conflict in these pages of of these visions, conflict between evildoers and the Lord, but we know that this will be the case, right? Didn't Jesus tell us that this would be the case? In his upper room discourse in John 16, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus also said in that upper room discourse, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We are engaged in a great conflict. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness, as Ephesians 6 says. But we don't lose heart because we know that in this contest, Christ is victorious. Jesus will triumph over every hostile power. So I encourage you today, be dealing with sin, but also know that Jesus will ultimately have the victory. He will one day return. He will bring righteousness and justice to the world. And we can take courage in this passage today that only God can finally remove evil and bring justice to the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage today, and we ask that you would take these words and encourage us by them. I pray that we would Uh, be animated to be removing sin from our lives so that we could pursue holiness. We look forward to the day when Jesus will return and bring true righteousness and justice to the earth. We're thankful for the fact that he will remove uh, these evil spiritual forces that are at work in our day to try to persuade people toward evil practices and toward uh, not believing in you and trusting in Christ for salvation. We pray that you would Give us victory as we seek to serve you, even when we're facing uh, the enemies of our souls. I pray that we would be steadfast and faithful, that you'd be glorified in us, and we look forward to your return. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.